Most of the issues that we have psychologically are relationally induced. And we learn how to shut ourselves down, how to get dysregulated, what issues dysregulate us because of relational issues, relational history, relational patterns. And it turns out that, yes, mindfulness is very, very useful for giving us a tool to be able to slow down and know who we are and to be able to speak most usefully in a relationship. And it is the case that unless we're doing some psychological work in a relationship with somebody who understands relationships and can see in relationship how we are not being honest with ourselves or not feeling what we probably really are feeling, <laughs> where we're really out of touch with our feelings. Meditation alone doesn't seem to address a lot of the psychological issues that we in the West carry. Good morning. This conversation today that you're about to listen to really bridges the gap between the last conversation with Bob Roth and the conversation I just recorded that I will release next week with David Cross, Dr. David Cross. Uh, it's it's interesting how I, this was not <laughs> this is not intentional, but. It works out really well. So Bob's area of interest is transcendental meditation, and it's kind of the way he talks about it is that it's out of a, a, a context of religious studies. Harvey's in a different situation. He's 
along with his wife, they, they're the founders of a, a meditation center in Houston called Dawn Mountain. And he's, in fact, you know, rooted in that uh, Tibetan religious structure, uh, so much so that he wrote a book called Buddhist Practice on Western Ground, Reconciling Eastern Ideals and Western Psychology. And so where, where I didn't see us going during this conversation was into attachment, not, not just, and this is, this is what he does. He looks at the kind of concepts and ideas in a Buddhist tradition and how they show up in a Western tradition. You know, attachment from a Buddhist perspective means very different things than attachment from the Western perspective, which is the kind of connections that one has with, uh, caregivers and early experience that kind of those relational dynamics pave the way for um, the potential of relational dynamics later in life. So we have this kind of interesting arc between you know, transcendental meditation, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, and Western psychology. And then next week, David is, uh, he's really interested in Taoism, um, his, his world is, is attachment, um, developmental attachment in, in human beings. So I think that's really cool that uh, I'd love to say that that happened because there was a wisdom behind the structuring of these conversations, but it really sometimes things just work out the way they should. And this is one of those. So I'm going to Note a couple of things. Uh, the music you're listening to is that you're just listening listen to is Modern Nations. You can get them at modernnationsmusic.com. The song for today is from uh, a bunch of friends. Um, Sean Russell is a is an old friend that I've known for many years, and he's got a new band that's uh, well, not really new, but relative to 20 years ago, it's a new band. <laughs> It's called the Cutthroat Finches, and you can get them at cutthroatfinches.com, C-U-T-T-H-R-O-A-T-F-I-N-C-H-E-S.com. Check out all their stuff. Their website's great, and it's got a lot of cool um, information and photos and videos and music, and uh, I think I think their album just came out, so they're, they're around touring and playing. Uh, their touring schedule is up online. Um. The, the other thing to note is the this podcast, The Sacred Speaks. It's findable uh, at many of your local and non-local social media outlets, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all searchable by uh, as The Sacred Speaks. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the cool things that I read Harvey's book and really moved by it as as a person who's been practicing meditation I've, I've been practicing for about 12 years and I certainly saw myself for the struggles that I've had through kind of reconciling kind of what I was learning through reading Buddhist teaching and then what I was learning by kind of our Western cultural norms and I think I think at the core Harvey does such a great job of of looking at culture and his treatment of culture, not, not, and it's interesting. It's it's multi-layered. It's not just what's happening between 
his approach with Tibetan culture and Western culture. It's it's almost anthropological in that the way that he looks at culture itself helps us understand some of the, you know, the beauty of culture and the limitations of the various cultures that we find ourselves in. Because culture is really like the, you know, I saw this cartoon years ago with a fish jumping out of water and it's looking down at the water saying, you know, oh, that's what that stuff is. Well, that's culture, you know, we're we're in it. And it, it, it takes this kind of, um, the, the way that he approached it in this book, it really takes that kind of um, attentive look at the various differences and um, in order to help us understand, you know, what what's going on when we, uh, with our own culture. That's at least was my take on it. I found myself being very interested in how my own culture influences and shows up and then to make some choices about how much I want to adhere to that you know we become conscious of those ways of being and then we get to have choice or at least sensitivity to understanding why it is we are uh, we behave in the way that we do and we think in the way that we do and we have the various concepts that uh, continue to show up in our lives so I want to read through Harvey's bio, and then we'll we'll get started. Um, so this is a this is on Don Mountain. I guess that's the other thing I need to note. DonMountain.org is uh, is the the this the place that Harvey and uh, Anne created uh, in Houston in 1996. Um, I, I, Anne, I'm 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 hopefully going to be chatting with her. I don't, I don't think she, she doesn't know it. <laughs> she doesn't know it, but I'm going to be at least knocking on her door. She's over at uh, Rice University. She and Harvey have created this space, and I'll just hit a, a I'll just talk for a second about Harvey, and then um, and we'll get started. Harvey B. Aronson in Tibetan, it's Namgal Jory. Holds a BA in chemistry from Brooklyn College. An MSW from Boston University and a PhD in Buddhist studies from the University of Wisconsin. He studied extensively with prominent teachers in the Gelguk Dojin and Theravada traditions in India, Nepal, and the United States. Harvey's the author of Buddhist Practice on Western Ground and Love and Sympathy in Theravada Buddhism, and a recognized scholar of the intersections between traditional Buddhist practice and Western therapeutic modalities. Anne and Harvey have been practicing and studying together in Asia and in the West since 1970. They received the title of Lama, Vajra Master, from their teacher in 2010. This was a this was an enlightening conversation. I really enjoyed uh, the kind of places where we didn't anticipate we'd be going. And I'm grateful to Harvey for making the time in his schedule. I'm really grateful for him writing this book. It it was very helpful. Um, again, from from on those layers, not only of culture in general, but the particulars of the culture, of the two cultures that when juxtaposed, help us uh, at least help me understand a culture itself. I think that's it, and I'll I'll close this out and uh, and bring you Harvey.
just imagining you up in some Tibetan cave with <laughs> some funky <laughs> Tibetan from the 14th century walking up with all this stuff in your headphones. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. There's a there's a movie that I'm really fond of called Embrace of the Serpent. Hmm. And it's a it's a really nice narrative. It's two time periods. There's a, you know, German young scientist in the first part of it who's gone to the Amazon to to learn from the this shaman. And the it it's interwoven with another narrative with a, a another young or excuse me the it starts with an older um scientist and a young shaman and the other narrative is the old shaman and a young scientist mm. and it's this really beautiful interplay of uh those values you know the kind of the the older and the younger um and in one scene you know the shaman he's walking around with a spear and his you know little cloth around his uh around his body and this scientist has just mounds of stuff you know the, the mm. baggage is mm-hmm. always all over the place and and the shaman just looks at him and laughs and this you know he's he's an obvious transgressor you know and he's just looking at him going why are you carrying around all this baggage mm-hmm. so there here's my, here's my baggage yeah <laughs> um i was saying earlier that uh When I said I'm I'm grateful, and you you know joked about we'll see what happens. I I think on on one level, of course, I'm talking about our conversation that we're going to be having today. We're having today. But another one is is this gratitude for the book that you've written, and you know, um, it 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 just it it. it flowed into me really well. I, I liked a lot of the things that you were saying. I've studied Buddhism a bit. I had a, a Zen teacher who uh, for many years lived at Plum Village with Thich Nhat Hanh in, mm-hmm. in France. Mm-hmm. And then another one of my teachers I actually just spoke with um, uh, in an interview on the podcast, Bob Roth, who's a transcendental meditation teacher and um, not not so... It, it, it transcendental meditation and the way he teaches it, it's not really contextualized in a in a particular um, religious tradition or philosophical tradition. It's at least the way that he teaches it. Um, but to read your book, I was I was also reconnecting with a lot of the early reading that I was doing in Buddhism, and I think I think you you connected some dots for me, and. Personally, one of my biggest struggles has been exactly what you were really trying to address, at least in, I think through the whole book, but especially in the beginning, which I, to use your term, and it may not have, I think you were referencing Piaget, um, I assimilated the information and it, it turned into, I think, this a, a bit of self-judgment whenever I would feel these natural feelings that we in our Western traditions feel. So it, the, the book really was a bit 
healing for me in a way that helped smooth some, at least begin to smooth some things out that I struggled with as a young guy connecting with Buddhism and basically started reading as many books as I possibly can, Mm -hmm. as I could. Um, And and while I had a teacher, we would do a, you know, every two weeks, we would do an extended workshop. And uh, I I wouldn't say that it was really an in-depth teaching, but um, so we were, we were both, you know, counseled through it, but also kind of left to our own devices. And I, I, I really resonated with a lot of the stories you would give about Westerners struggling in, um, in an Eastern tradition. So this is my big preamble to say thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. And, you know, just listening to what you say, um, you know, the great news is that, like yourself, I'm a kind of lifelong learner and a lifelong reflector. And the more I learn and the more I contemplate and consider, um, there are some very, very interesting complexities that face us in the West when we engage in a spiritual path. One of my favorite recent books that I read at, I have never readily read it beginning to end, is uh, Alice Miller's Thou Shalt Not Be Aware. And uh, it's a kind of a screed, and it's particularly a screed against Freudian psychoanalysis, in particular against its denial, historically, of the sexual abuse of children, and then the physical abuse as well, ultimately. Um, I don't know that analysis denied that part, but that there's generally a denial of abuse. I think that, you know, I, I'm both willing and in a way unwilling to say too much about Tibetan culture because I didn't grow up in it. And mm-hmm. of course, I've seen it from a distance. And even what I've seen is a bit derivative because a lot of it is refugee culture. But I think I can fairly say, and I think uh, in a way almost universally, for modern Western individuals, as we are brought up, we are all brought up with a certain amount of defense. And if you were to ask me the biggest difference between let's say, an Asian psychology and Western psychology is Western psychology contribution of the understanding of defense and defense mechanisms. Mm -hmm. There is actually a pretty sophisticated, tempted to call it cognitive psychology in, in Buddhism, but there's really not an equivalent to what would be called a psychology of the unconscious that we have in the West, and of course there are, I think we can say there are many psychologies of the unconscious in the West, there's probably not one, but that understanding that um, emotions, impulses, even senses of self uh, can be multi-layered and some 
some emotions and some senses of self are both very, very operative but out of awareness, um, that's not part of the kind of conversation and let's say Buddhist material. And so the complexity goes something like this. Most Westerners have some issues around how their defenses have structured their personalities and their ability to know their emotions and to be able to express them well. And I mean, one, in terms of people who are attracted to Buddhism, it's not everyone, but many, many people who are attracted to Buddhism were attracted to Asian spirituality. Um, there's often a pattern of um, restricted emotionality. Uh, and sometimes it can, it, sometimes yes, sometimes no, there may even be a pattern of passive behavior. I bring that particular structure up because if you take that structure and take it into Asia, and Asian culture is actually quite varied, but if you were to go to, let's say, a Theravada country, and you had somebody who was restricted emotionally and somewhat passive in presentation, this would be, in a Buddhist culture like Thailand or Burma, this might be considered very, very, very positive. Mm. And there would be a fair bit of reinforcement what, for what is culturally psychologically created kind of embodiment. For that Westerner, as a Westerner in Western life, the real challenge typically is, you know, for them to actually learn what their emotions are and to be able to assert themselves in a healthy way. But if they go into a traditional Buddhist situation, they're going to get messages of restraint of emotion and respect for authority, for example. And it's going to work to reinforce all of the things that were not working for this person, even though they may not have realized it well psychologically in the West become reinforced as positives in, let's say, a Buddhist meditative tradition, particularly in the Theravada tradition, which is quite restrained. Um, so it's a very, very interesting situation for a Westerner, and it becomes complicated because what could start off as merely a psychological issue then also becomes a kind of consciously adhered to dogma or religious issue that not only <laughs> am I unconsciously in favor of my defensive structures, which may not be functioning that well, mm -hmm. now I've got really reasons 
to sustain those structures. And um, so for me personally, you know, and obviously I'm saying a lot of this out of my own autobiography, um, I not only, you know, if I were just clean shot dealing with issues of restrained emotions and maybe some kind of passivity, um, psychologically, in some ways it would have been a cleaner shot, but, you know, there I was starting in my mid-twenties getting that reinforced with certain conceptual structures and also cultural structures. It's very, very complicated because it's not necessarily the case that all Buddhists are going to look like Theravada Buddhists. If you look like at Tibetans, they're actually quite um, assertive and strong and you know, if you go into the courtyards of the monasteries and they're doing t debates, it's it's the closest thing to WrestleMania that you could imagine <laughs> in a religious context. Um, so it doesn't always have to be passive and entirely restrained. Um, but for me personally, I, I needed to figure out how to negotiate not only my own personal stylistic issues and psychological issues, but it became clear that those had become reinforced with uh, Buddhist theory, and which I took, took and take very seriously. Um, and so, you know, I think, as with any religious tradition, if you hunt and peck in the tradition and you really scrape at it long enough, you typically can find what you want to find. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know that you would find an excuse for licentious behavior, though, in, let's say, the Theravada literature. But I wasn't looking for that. But, you know, if you look even in the discourse on mindfulness, uh, and you look in the mindfulness of, uh, I'm not sure which heading it comes under, but in one particular heading, it, it's very, very clear. I mean, Gautama is quoted as saying, when I am angry, I am mindful of the fact that I am angry. Clearly, whether it be he or some of his disciples, felt anger. And so that was part of the repertoire of their human experience was they were experiencing anger and they were supposed to be mindful of that. You know, I think coming into adulthood for whatever reason, um, I actually had a sense that I shouldn't even feel anger. And there are actually some Buddhist teachers who would explicitly say things like, you know, you should not feel anger. Now, when Westerners hear that, they usually take a nosedive and or leave. Yeah. 
or it creates an enormous amount of complication unless you happen to be wired like I am or was and that didn't even necessarily feel that odd to begin with. But I, I take the statement in the mindfulness discourse as actually a great permission or acknowledgement for the fact that practitioners, humans, are going to feel anger. And so historically for me, and when I entered therapy, um, which was precipitated by some panic attacks, um, really the issue, even though you can find in the literature that acknowledgement that people do experience anger, you can also find in the Theravada literature a discourse where it's basically said, you know, one moment of anger is really, it's terrible. It's, you know, even if somebody was cutting you with a saw, you're not supposed to have a feeling of anger towards that person. This is a pretty high benchmark. Um, so, just talking about anger, I mean, it, it was it became something of a crosshair of uh, great complexity for me when I was in therapy. And um, <laughs> I mean, it was kind of funny. Uh, it was short-term therapy. Uh, it was with a guy named Jeff Binder, who I think was quite famous now in the short-term therapy world, um, but he he was relatively young at that point, and he was at, in a clinic at Charlottesville. And when I went in, I had, a f well, actually, I had, when I had the panic attacks, I had this questionnaire that I filled out, and everything was fine, except for there was a little bit of maybe tension around my workspace. but. It was kind of a marker of my denial and, and really not allowing myself to feel anything. Everything was fine. There was no area of my life that was problematic. And so I went in and he would ask a variety of questions about things and everything was fine. And, and it was kind of funny, like I would notice that maybe, I didn't even really notice, but slowly after the fact, like maybe six days after the therapy session, I noticed I'd be a little bit grouchy about something. And then five days after the therapy, I'd be grouchy. And then I think maybe in the next to the last or even the last session, he asked something about something. And I was actually grumpy in the session, which you know was not actually part of what I felt I should be allowed to feel. And um, he, he was a good therapist. <laughs> he said, what's happening? What are you feeling? And I mean, I kind of finally decided, well, I'm going to. And I said, well, anger is there, which is kind of ter American Theravada <laughs> way of talking. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> 
you know, I wasn't going to say I am angry. Um, <laughs> but um, I found that whole experience, it was just 10 sessions, uh, actually mind-blowing, literally, in terms of you know, I'd started off with everything was fine and I had this questionnaire and I filled it out and everything was fine. But, you know, this guy was asking questions and I was slowly, slowly recognizing that everything I was kind of accommodating to and this whole kind of structure of accommodation was just that, a structure. And I did have these feelings. And that was quite amazing and curious. Um... And so I was a professor of Buddhist studies at the time, and a few years later, I didn't get tenure, and I needed to figure out what I was going to do. And I didn't notice that, you know, the people who, students who wanted to cut on themselves or talk about suicide would come to me, and I kind of felt somewhat comfortable talking to them. And it seemed to work out well and seemed, seemed natural to listen to people's problems. Um, people felt better talking to me, and I enjoyed it. Um, so I decided to train as a therapist. There was another series of 10 sessions, short-term therapy, that I had in the middle of all of that. Um, and so I figured out, it took quite a while, it took about a year and a half actually to decide what I would train in or do and, and, and what particular venue or avenue to train in, so I decided on social work. Um, and um, it was quite, in some ways, trying because both my psychology and my sort of the doctrines that I had absorbed were, seemed to indicate to restrain all emotion. And, you know, I think what I have come to over the years is um, I think there is a psychologically healthy way to be emotional and to be in accord with what the Buddhist teachings are teaching. You know, almost everybody writing in psychology today will, or most of the people I like anyway, will talk about this kind of, and I think I even call it a sweet spot in the book, um, the sweet spot between repression and acting out and or suppression. And you know, eighth, one of the pieces that I think needs to be considered is, you know, first of all, what is it that even in the Asian tradition, when they're talking about anger, are they talking about? And I don't think the word anger and the words that they're using in the Asian tradition are exactly uh, semantically equal they do seem to be talking about harmfulness, first of all, and they are talking about restraining harmfulness per se. 
and they certainly don't want to support harmful activity. And I, I can feel very comfortable with, with that. Is it, uh, here, I'll ask the question when I'm right. sucker for uh, authentic experience um, you said something there I, I want to jump in for a second because I'm I find myself I get sensitive to people that don't necessarily speak the language because you're you circled back to that to de to recognize that the two cultures um, are not are not agreeing on the definition of terms right which uh, I've, I've just, whether it's with couples or family members, that's so often the case. It's a matter of interpretation of what's presented. Right. Even in a couple, you could have two different cultures. Yeah. and Even you, if they're from the same culture, as it were. You and I get into conflict, and we're both saying extremely valid, extremely important things, except the conflict is in our misunderstanding of right. what each other is intending. So uh, let me just kind of leave a bread trail, crumb trail to anger there. Because one, two, two things that are standing out, I think, are defenses, when you talked about defenses and the unconscious. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just curious what you mean by those two things, um, maybe in general, but absolutely in this context. Could you yeah. speak about that? Yeah. So let me just complete the thought. And cool. It's a little bit complicated but so in terms of culturally i think in buddhism when they're talking about anger they're certainly talking about harmfulness mm -hmm. and they're certainly talking about not acting out harmfulness and either not encouraging harmful thoughts or being mindful of harmful thoughts and so if you have harmful thoughts you should be mindful of them, and you should notice their, notice their impermanence, their changing, uh, and you certainly shouldn't encourage them. So, just in brief, through all my training in psychology, I would say that I can end up in a place which is very, very simpatico with that position. If you're having harmful thoughts, you don't want to like put miracle grow on them. You certainly want to be mindful of those thoughts. And you also ultimately want to understand what are they coming from? I mean, there's some underlying something. So that would actually be a good example to in a way, answer your question about uh, defenses and um, unconscious. So there are two frameworks that I'm pretty actively working out of nowadays. One is called Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, and the other is, <laughs> it's a mouthful, <laughs> and the other is Emotionally Focused Therapy. Yeah. It turns out that they're both the 
children of Les Greenberg. So Les Greenberg is a professor of psychology in Toronto, uh-huh. and he started emotionally focused therapy. Uh, Susan Johnson. Sue Johnson started emotionally focused couples therapy, and Diana Fosha, who's actually also a student of Les Greenberg, started accelerated experiential dynamic psychotherapy. So what do all of these things have in common? Well, they're actually all offsprings of short-term dynamic psychotherapy, STDP. Um, And short-term dynamic psychotherapy is a child and grandchild of psychoanalysis. And but to answer your question very, very specifically, so let's say I feel like I want to kill you, mm-hmm. and we're in a couple situation to use the EFT model. In EFT, they would call that a secondary emotion, and that typically the primary emotion under that is, let's say that I want to kill you because you came late and we had agreed you'd come early. And if we can poke around and sort of get very empathic and very sympathetic and very compassionate. So under that desire to kill John, what, what's that hostility all about? Well, he said he would come early and he came late. Okay, and so when he comes late, you know, what does that mean to you? Well, he's an unreliable person. Okay, so that's about John. But what are you feeling about yourself? Can you? Often it's very, very difficult for the person to be able to articulate. So I might do a multiple choice. Are you feeling seen or unseen? Oh, unseen. Are you feeling appreciated or unappreciated? Unappreciated. Are you feeling loved or unloved? Definitely unloved. Worthwhile or unworthwhile? Oh, unworthwhile. Okay, so the conscious experience is, I want to kill John. I'm really angry. The out-of-awareness, defended-against position, which is more vulnerable, is, I feel unlovable. I feel unloved. I feel unseen. I feel worthless. And so those are unconscious in that moment. They're out of awareness. And they're defended against because at some point we learned not to tolerate that kind of feeling. And so defenses, they're used, the word is used slightly differently amongst different authors and different layers of the psychoanalytic tradition. And, you know, and it started off with Freud, and these were modes of, for him, these would be ways of protecting against the instinctual energies. You defended against instinctual energies. But nowadays, I think most people, people who are writing in the fields that I'm, the way that I'm interested, will use the the term as ways that we learn to cover over and uh, obscure our own emotional experience 
or our own sense of self um, that we learn typically uh, at some level in our histories we shouldn't feel, shouldn't express, whether it's you're dancing on the table and your mother says, Harvey, don't be so happy on the table. You should never dance on the table. You shouldn't be happy in that way. So then you start even maybe defending against exuberance or um, it can be anything. You know, don't you dare ever be angry with me. And you hear that enough or you, the worst is you read that in the body English of your parents and you just internalize that in your own bones and you're not even aware that you have that as a restriction, but it's a defense against, let's say, assertiveness and anger. And so um, I see more and more in my work, it's not the only thing we do as psychotherapists, but a lot of what we're doing is helping people experience what they were denied the validity of experiencing when they were younger and allowing people to to allow the sprouts to shoot forth from the ground that weren't allowed to shoot forth when they were younger so just to do a little synthesis for a moment So there are, quote, negative emotions that can be problematic if acted out. If I feel like killing you because you've come late and then I call you a son of a bitch, you know, you're unworthwhile, you're unreliable, I don't know why I ever agreed to even have a meeting with you. You know, so I'm completely acting out. And that's what happens with a lot of people who come to us as couples. It's just, it's kind of like all acting out all the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, both psychotherapists and Buddhists would agree, you know, it's, whether it's karmically not useful or helpful or psychologically not useful or helpful, it doesn't work. And so the an intersection, which is, of course, very, very popular now, where the two traditions intersect is in psychotherapy, whether we call it self-reflection, we call it mentalizing, we call it awareness. If we can get our people to be aware of, one, their emotion, and then two, what is really, in a way, underneath their emotion, and to say, in what would be called, uh, you know, the assertiveness model, describe a behavior when you come late. I feel unlovable or unloved, and it feels terrible. I feel like ripping my hair out. That's a beautiful form of communication psychotherapeutically because it's honest, it's referring to a feeling, and it describes a behavior, and you can have a real productive conversation in a couple situation if you can talk like that. Well, a skill that's very useful there is the skill of mindfulness. And mindfulness, you know, allows us to become more aware of what's going on in our bodies and our emotions and our thoughts. And so if we learn something like mindfulness or concentration in a Asian tradition, it can provide a tool 
that can carry over into the psychotherapeutic endeavor for allowing people to be much more sensitive to themselves and give them a little space to be able to say the kind of thing that can be very, very productive. Now, just to fast forward a little bit and say something, then you can tell me whatever, ask me whatever you want. <laughs> In the Buddhist context, that skill was developed to understand the nature of reality. And whether it's in Theravada Buddhism, where it's to understand impermanence, the unsatisfactory nature of all impermanent phenomena, and ultimately the fact that anything that's impermanent and selfless can't have a self the way we typically understand self, leading ultimately to a state of quiescent peacefulness and ultimately from the liberation from cyclic rebirth, that mindfulness in that context is a tool for that. Or in the Tibetan tradition where mindfulness is used ultimately to understand the nature of mind, and the nature of mind is Buddha nature, and to realize your own Buddhahood, you would be free from rebirth and you would be enlightened. Those are religious, spiritual purposes for the use of mindfulness originally. What's happened is that that skill has been absorbed and uh, excised from its spiritual context in Asia and imported now into a lot of therapeutic uh, ventures uh, to be used and, and, and used usefully um, to enhance people's ability to reflect and to be able to own what's going on emotionally. One of the things that was not done when people were really practicing meditation intensively in Asia, it was a private endeavor typically, or even if they were doing it in a group, it was solitary and silent. Most of the issues that we have psychologically are relationally induced. And we learn how to shut ourselves down, how to get dysregulated, what issues dysregulate us because of relational issues, relational history, relational patterns. And it turns out that, yes, mindfulness is very, very useful for giving us a tool to be able to slow down and know who we are and to be able to speak most usefully in a relationship. And it is the case that unless we're doing some psychological work in a relationship with somebody who understands relationships and can see in relationship how we are not being honest with ourselves or not feeling what we probably really are feeling, <laughs> where we're really out of touch with our feelings. Meditation alone doesn't seem to address a lot of the psychological issues that we in the West carry. And that may be due in part to our culture and to the way our child-rearing practices, which, you know, even our developmental psychology and what we do actually as parents differs quite a bit. What we understand about what children need and what children actually get is unfortunately a little bit out of whack. And 
I think we end up in trouble because of that. Would you go into that a bit? Well, if you were to really take our developmental research seriously, and especially attachment research, mm-hmm. it seems that you know a high level of consistent maternal or maternal figure um, bonding is really optimal for what we call secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And not everybody can provide that for their children or wants to provide that for their children. And there's a lot of cultural pressure not to provide that, to have children go into care with strangers and uh, very early ages. And I think our children pay a price for it. It's a very politically incorrect thing to say. I'm glad you said it because my I'm actually going to be interviewing a, a developmental psychologist who's a mentor of mine who has been leading some of the research and attachment with uh, a lot of my early work was in adoption and trauma. Mm. And that just it resonates. So a lot of what I end up thinking about from a psychological lens is how we can uh, engage the parenting dynamic to do two things. You know, one is to be present and nourish and nurture a child as they are dependent upon us and they need us. And also through that relationship, nourish those things that need tending to in myself. I don't mean from a, I'm using my child to heal my wounds, but the child certainly will trigger and bring to light certain things that I've, I've had going on in my experience. And if I have the, I think, correct attitude, I'm able to be mindful of those feelings and be conscious of um, where I can transform. Yeah, so a parent certainly in parenting can revisit, and typically they do, things that did or didn't occur, mm-hmm. acts of omission and commission. But, you know, I think uh, Alan Shore is a, Shore is a, affective neuroscientist and I think he would say or has said you know the first two years of life are when the right brain is um, pretty much more active according to him and the left brain is not even I think what's called myelinated yet and we're not really developing the cognitive part of the brain just mm-hmm. yet and that's when the attachment bonds are strong and he really pretty strongly recommended you know a child could really benefit from having their mother you know or a primary attachment figure a continuous primary attachment figure for that period we just don't culturally do that and I think that you know now I heard some people talking about uh I guess, uh, yeah, it was a talk by, I'm going to forget his name, Porges, Stephen Porges, who's doing work on the polyvagal theory. And he's talking about kids who are pretty much being brought up by, you know, iPads. And they're not gaining the mammalian skill of learning how to be soothed by another mammal. And that is our mammalian heritage. And, you know, 
it's tough enough if you're doing it with somebody who's not your consistent primary maternal figure, even if that were a father. Um, but you know, if you get shuttled between a number of strangers and and uh, and then ultimately it's an iPad, you're really not learning, and your 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 neurology is not getting used to a very very basic skill of how to get regulated through social contact, which is part of our genetic heritage and something we need. Um, I didn't really want to stray into this, but it just came up. Well, the uh, the thought. Uh, to revisit something you said earlier, I, I had written it down. In the family system, part, I think part of what you were talking about when repression or suppression happens in the family system, I've always thought of this example as a, let's say a child is going to their mother, their father, and their one in connection. You know, you're dancing on the table. You want to be affirmed. You want to, you create a an art project and you want to show it to them and you want to say, hey, look at this. And they tell you that you colored outside the lines or to get off the table. You know, y your need as a child was to belong and be affirmed and be connected with. And that's a, that need, right? Connection and belonging. But that's not met. What's, what, what's overlaid upon that is some cultural ideal of, of appropriateness or some kind of aspect or what a judgment from the parent and in in that dynamic the child then pulls away and carries that belief i like your your word exuberance you know that all of a sudden there's an association with exuberance that you should be more um measured right one should not express oneself well that's bullshit because it's not it, it, we we have the capacity to feel all those emotions and to suppress one of them means that energy's going somewhere and it'll it'll be you know projected or sublimated into some other way and that's um I, I, well I, if it were sublimated it would be all right but typically it's right it's just chewing around down there and it's it's creating an issue yeah and and then when you see somebody who dances wildly and you say oh those people <laughs> Right. They're out of control. Yeah. Or you make some virtue out of uh, tight-knit control, and, and meanwhile you're eating your stomach to pieces. I mean, it, it, if it were, I mean, in the Freudian term, sublimated, it would be in a way ideal, but yeah. I think often it's not digested and it's just bubbling about in a kind of problematic manner. Well, I'm glad you got into attachment, even though you were <laughs> careful about the appropriateness yeah, where we are which which i think speaks to the culture even that comment from you about it's not very politically correct right now that's the culture laying down its its wounds or its perspective when we can just look at neuroscience and attachment and even human behavior and see that something ain't working yeah and i think one of the i mean my own rough guesstimate is from what I've seen of traditional Tibetan child rearing was that the child was pretty much on the mother literally mm -hmm. <laughs> for the first probably two years on or near the mother for the first two years and she was available and whatever else may be the case they may have had a very different 
set of internals than most of us have, you know, and even if our mothers are even trying to mother of us, uh, mother us 24-7 nowadays, the preoccupations and involvements and the media things that modern individuals get distracted with, it makes it very, very hard for a a modern mother to attend to a child. And, you know, I think traditionally there would have been some mix of the mother and relatives with, you know, a primary and then several secondaries, and it created something. I think whatever the case may be, it's really hard on kids nowadays to get what they need by way of appropriate reflection and appropriate um, development of emotional intelligence. Um, You know, one of the things I, there's an interesting guy named Georgi Gergely, who's a Hungarian developmental psychologist, and in an article I wrote, he talks about how children learn to give words to their emotions, and it has to do with the mother noticing and then engaging in what's called motherese. You know, oh, Johnny, I see you're angry right now. And it's very, very interesting because the mother is actually mentalizing in that instance. She's, she's knowing the child's anger, she's putting words on it, and she's not getting absorbed in the anger or re- reacting to the anger. She's just serving as, in a way, external mindfulness mm-hmm. for the child. And she's giving the child a word for his experience. And it's a very, very tender and delicate and sweet interaction if it occurs. And you know, I don't know that that occurred in my history much. Um, and then the child has a word for the experience of what anger is and also some affirmation that it's okay that that feeling is occurring. Absent that, the the really uh, two-bit word that you can end up with is alexithymia, mm-hmm. which is where you don't actually have words for your emotions. You don't you can't even put words to your emotions, and um, so very, very predominant nowadays. People don't know their emotions, and they don't know that it's okay to feel them. They don't know what the words are to put with them. They don't feel they have permission, and you instead get a lot of acting out and a lot of weird behavior and compulsive and addictive, you know, situations. So it's really, and you know, and people with their, I mean, this iPad culture is just going to, Lord knows what the next generation is going to be like. Yikes. I had an image of uh, a thought, I guess, of how consciousness is out, outside of the skin, outside of the boundaries of the skin, because in that ma- maternal dynamic, the, the dynamic between the child and the mother, that's, that, that, that's a conscious system. You know, that's really an interesting image thinking about a child having that external loop, that feedback yeah, yeah. loop to help them kind of begin to develop a sense of self in the world when, mm-hmm. when in infancy, you know, there's, I guess there's no, no boundaries to that uh, in childhood. You don't really have a, 
I imagine, at least my, my imagination is you don't have really a boundary as a child of what is, what is me and what is not. Mm-hmm. Um, is that an, is that a good, would it be a good moment to get into self right there? What, what feels natural? Cause I, th- that's fine. Okay. What, what, what do you want to say or ask? I, I want to, well, I want to throw this out there about, I want to take advantage of you, uh, being connected with attachment and psychoanalytic theory, but also Buddhist theory and psychology, and just kind of riff for a little bit on ego self to define those terms a bit, maybe from each different tradition, and just talk about how you've come to understand those ideas and concepts current day. Yeah, so... It can be slippery, and it can be confusing, and it can also be easy. (laughs) Uh, In the the Buddhist usage, the sense of self they're talking about is a kind of unexamined sense that most of us, if we were to examine it, would admit it doesn't really stand up to <clears throat> analysis, but a sense that the same <clears throat> person was there when I was four years old, and the same person will be there when I'm 44 and 74. And in a way, the the Buddhist analysis is, you know, can you... There's something you think is the same, but can you actually find that somehow autonomous, solid something that you seem to sort of hold to? So that's, in a way, the Buddhist sense of self that they're exploring. Now, the other thing that is quite rigorous in the Theravada materials is can you find that self anywhere in your experience so you look at your consciousness and you look at your feelings and you look at your perception and you look at your reactions and you look at your body and you know is that sense of Harvey in my this tooth they'll actually do meditations like that you know and they go through the 32 teeth is it in that tooth there's in this tooth is in my fingernail you know, is it in my finger? If you chop off my finger, will Harvey be missing? So, on the one hand, there's this kind of unchanging, autonomous, independent self that we kind of hold on to that is the basis, in a way, in Buddhist psychology for a feeling of suffering when things are lost or there are changes, there's kind of an injury to that sense of unchangingness. But at the same time, you know, in Buddhist psychology, they have a very, very articulated set of functions that occur. And, um, you know, if you look at ego psychology as a brand of or part of psychoanalytic psychology, you know, the ego with its functions of analysis and planning and judgment, 
you could probably find most of those functions in the Abhidhamma, the analysis of mind in the Theravada literature. And so the word ego, and I write about that in the book, um, it's really a slippery slope. Ego in the sense of ego psychology in terms of a functioning ability to analyze, judge, perceive, discriminate, executive functions of mind. None of executive functions of mind are denied in Buddhism. And Buddha clearly, historically, had wonderful executive functions of mind. He even clearly was able to remember himself over prior lives and, and post-enlightenment was able to use the first person, at least verb, you know, I am enlightened. Um, what ego is denied as, there are two things that one can explore. One is ego in the sense of pride is considered a kind of affliction. So pride in an unhealthy sense is considered a kind of mental affliction. Um, and so in a gross sense, that ego, when they say give up your ego, uh, you know, Rambo, Rocky, uh, some political figures that will go unnamed, you know, that kind of ego is considered an affliction. A more subtle take on that actual particular word is sense of self. And uh, in a commentary to the Path of Purification, which is an encyclopedia of Theravada meditation, um, the at least in the English commentary, there's um, a little bit an expanded um, commentary on the sense of pride. And the, the word in Pali is mana, which literally just means measure. And there it says that all of the following are afflictions. I am higher, some sense I am higher. So that's ego in sort of in a way that he's got a big ego sense. But what I really like, it also says, I am lower which really deals with the whole um, self-hatred, self-criticism that perplexes almost everybody who enters into the spiritual path or even a psychological path. Um, people get really beset with self-hatred and self-criticism. That's a huge issue in the West that we really have to pay a lot of attention to that doesn't get that much attention, I don't think, in traditional um, Buddhist teaching, um, but the the in a way most subtle and most interesting is the sense of I am is also a form of pride or status consciousness, if you like, mm -hmm. and that is where you're. I think the best way to understand that in modern psychological lingo is where you're identified with a sense of I am, where. And this is very hard to do linguistically. 
most people, when they hear disidentification, they hear schizoid disidentification, and they kind of imagine Mr. Spock from Star Wars mm -hmm. as this kind of refrigerator personality. And what it means, I think, both in psychology and in Buddhist meditation is, again, it's a kind of sweet spot awareness of what is with not being disengaged. I mean, the schizoid disidentification is defended and removed from engagement with life. When we talk about, let's say, mentalizing, we're talking about a capacity to both feel and know without being overwhelmed by a feeling. And I think when we're talking about giving up the sense of I am, we're talking about giving up the identification of I am without being frigid, without being distant, just holding to this sort of identity, clinging, if you wish, uh, to identity in a stubborn kind of manner instead of just recognizing that everything's in a flow, everything's in a flow, and, and being able to flow with that and not being stuck with some sense of I am. But I think that arises just to give us both some perspective that particular affliction in the Theravada scheme is not really dealt with or given up until the absolute final layer of realization. And that ability to not be identified with any particular experience, even though you are experiencing, is a very, very high state. And I think it's easy to misunderstand what that might look like. Isn't this non-attachment? Right, but not so. The interesting question is, what does non-attachment mean? And most people, I think, in the English-speaking world, will conflate non-attachment with detachment. And again, the figure of Spock in Star Trek sure. appears. Whereas, you know, if we've been lucky enough to meet a lot of Buddhist teachers. You know, I would certainly most people have seen His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who's incredibly warm and compassionate and related and non-attached. And so it's hard for many people to appreciate that you could be kind and compassionate and caring, but not sticky. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think non-attachment figures in. It's not detachment, it's non-attachment. And interestingly enough, if you read the attachment literature and the research, um, the children who are brought up with secure attachment are less clingy, even at about a year and a half or two years, mm -hmm. whereas the children who are either avoidant or ambivalent or uh, I'm not sure about disorganized, but their relationship to other is just more rigid or programmatic. It's more, there's more distress involved mm. 
for the unsecurely attached child. The securely attached child can actually be alone and comfortable. The others may look that way, but they're not. I mean, one of the interesting things about the um, what's it, the avoidant attached child is when the mother walks out of the room, the child looks very calm and is playing, but if you put a heart monitor on yeah. it, it's look, registering. Uh, just for anybody out there, check out um, the strange situation. You can look at uh, tons of examples of this. Um, one of my favorite videos is Tronic's um, Still Face. The, that and the strange situation, I tend to teach to those a lot. But yeah, although you know they they've done uh, urine analysis of you know diapers post you know caregiver leaving, and it's just full of cortisol. And even mm -hmm. though these kids are just avoidantly attached, kids are you know, stoic and yeah. not really sh not showing anything. And I even think that I once read of one study that um, they brought a bunch of American parents into a room to watch a bunch of different kids and said what's you know what's your preferred kid and they want the quiet one who's playing on their own and yeah well that goes into the whole that that shall not be aware yeah yeah <laughs> it's a big cultural value yes it's a huge cultural so, value so connect that to the ipad which is really some some kind of way of saying you you do that because I can't be bothered by right. I'm going to give you an electronic pacifier. You're not, and it's really not anywhere close to a human relationship. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad you circled back to the attachment piece because I, when we were talking about it earlier, and we were kind of you had said something about the political correctness. What do you say to the, you know, the person who's saying that's not politically correct? You can't speak like that. Well, nobody's really put it in my face quite like that. But I would say, you know, from what we see in the research, you know, children benefit from consistent, rather full-time parenting for the first two years of their lives. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it, it, you, when this comes up, I, Eric Erickson using the trust versus mistrust, I mean, try to carry that around with you for the rest of your life, that there will be some kind of sense that the world cannot or will not meet your needs when you ask. And I, th I think that there's this one... The attachment cycle that a friend of mine presents on, which is, you know, the, the, the child has a need and expresses it, and it's usually a couple of ways, but primarily it's to cry or to cry out. And that, whole, that the neurological system, that excitatory system that comes online in that moment, and when the need is met, it's the inhibitory system and, mm -hmm. you know, soothed. What well, you said earlier, self-soothing, creating the... Uh, the self-regulation, but when it's not, when the need's not met, that's you know, that cycle is not completed, so it stays in the in the red zone, and somebody's kind of highly activated and gets reactive. I think an unfortunate reality is that if you try to cite Eric Erickson on trust and mistrust, most of the people in the audience you're talking to are going to be 
dealing with the effects of chronic mistrust, and they're not even going to be able to understand wow. what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the sad reality. Because I don't think most Americans, I mean, I don't know nowadays, but I don't think that most people in our culture feels feel fundamental trust. We certainly don't see that in our clinical population. Right. Even though some of the injuries may have occurred afterwards. But, you know, I don't think that secure attachment is that widely prevalent nowadays. I, th I think it's at like 50%. Well, if it's 50, that's great. Yeah, I, th I think, I, but then you have, and I can't remember when I read this last, then you have, of the secure attachment, you then have this little portion or maybe a bigger portion that has features. So you have securely attached with features of ambivalent or avoidant, mm. Mm. and that gets into the kind of the working well. A little bit of gray area. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> yeah, a little, okay, sure yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's tough because where we've come to is to expect and approve of, you know, parents to be involved with the world. And I'm all in favor of freedom and people doing that. It just seems there may be a price that, you know, our culture is paying for that. It's 12.35. Yes, sir. How long do you have? Maybe 10 more minutes. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see that one coming, the attachment piece. I'm happy it did, though. Mm. Uh, I've been working in that community for over a decade. What, what are we leaving out? Well, I think one thing that gets left out often is that Buddhism is a religious spiritual tradition with, you know, it would be popular to use the word almost technology, but mm -hmm. I think that it's kind of horrific in this instance, with a lineage <laughs> of information on realizing truths of a different ontological order than the ordinary everyday world and while there's a lot of significant um, psychological information available in traditional Buddhism and a lot of that has been mined and, and been uh, in some ways altered as it's been absorbed into the modern Western psychotherapeutic um, metaphor, what um, is not necessarily getting as much attention and is um, equally or more profound is the vision of what the mind is capable of whether we talk about Theravada Buddhism, and, uh, Tibetan Buddhism, or Zen Buddhism, or Chan, or Pure Land, um, the depths of realization, the freedom that may be realizable internally, um, these are teachings and um, paths that require a lot of 
commitment, involvement, energy. And they're presented in a language that is often religious and spiritual and, and foreign. And, and to, I think many Western is a bit off-putting. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, there's this huge issue in the Buddhist community as to um, how to bring this kind of material to a Western audience. So uh, I think I mentioned in my book, Richard Schwader, who's a brilliant cultural psychologist, uh, has got this article where he talks about three major metaphors in the world. So, you know, we wake up with a headache and the three metaphors that, it's really four, but one is somebody's put a needle through a little doll in somebody's head. It's the, it's the voodoo metaphor. The other is I'm waking up with a headache, which is karma. And the other is the psychosomatic. I'm waking up with a headache because there's something wrong with my brain chemicals. That's somatic. Or I'm waking up with a headache because my wife screamed at me yesterday. That's psychological. Buddhism is written in a karmic narrative. It is presented morally and, and it's presented in a frame of rebirth and freedom from rebirth and um, the techniques and the teachings and the concentrations and the practices of wisdom are for developing freedom from rebirth and recognizing either in the Theravada this deep nature of Nibbana or in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition the true nature, one's Buddha nature, which is clear and wise and compassionate. Um, but the an issue is that the traditional language, I think, is very, very hard for modern Westerners to assimilate um, if it, things are presented in terms of right and wrong there is, people have often had very, very restrictive religious backgrounds and they react very, very negatively to that kind of uh, religious languaging. I myself uh, am familiar some with what's called Reconstructionist Judaism where the idea was to look at the tradition, understand the tradition as well as possible, understand the historic nature of the tradition, and then to see how modern Jewish people can make meaningful use of that historical tradition. And I'm not saying I'm presenting reconstruction as Buddhism, but I am saying that I think that where I situate myself, maybe unlike some, is I'm very, very oriented to understanding what the tradition is and knowing the language and understanding the tradition in its original and appreciating it fully as such. And I'm also quite committed to letting people be exposed to that as it is and trying to help people make use of that as well as possible in the modern situation. And that's not always that easy. Um, Tibetan Buddhism has lots of deities, gods and deities, and 
People sometimes relate well to that, sometimes they don't. There's talk of rebirth. Some people relate well to that, some people don't. Um, I still think that the teachings are so powerful and so significant and transformative and open up to information that is not otherwise available that it's very, very much worth the immersion into the into that world. But it's it's not necessarily that easy for everyone to do. Well, I think that's what you were doing um, in the book. Yeah, and and I did it very, very mindfully. You know, I was, I think my PhD supervisor said, you know, you should always have your audience standing in front of you hmm. as you're writing. And I, I pretty much had, you know, traditional Buddhists standing in front of me, and I had modern psychotherapists standing in front of me, and I had modern Westerners standing in front of me. And I very mindfully wanted to be respectful and honoring of all of those stakeholders. I think they all have something very, very important to share. And, you know, when I first went to India, I remember kind of standing in Sarnath, which is where the Buddha gave his first teaching. I think, oh, we're all the same. And after 30 or 40 years of involvement, we're not the same. <laughs> Fundamentally, as humans, yes, there's so many core issues. Yes, we, you know, and His Holiness will always say, we don't want suffering and we do want happiness. Yes, that is so true. And there are so many ways in which somebody brought up in a traditional Alpine Tibetan culture is very, very different, down to the fact of, for them, up and down are the primary metaphors of life. I mean, you're living on a mountain. Up and down have meaning. Even in relationships, up and down has a lot of meaning. And in our culture, and especially in the flatlands of America, even Stephen <laughs> has yeah. a lot of meaning, and democracy, and you know, we're all equal. Just on that even geographical level, it's so powerful. Mm. You know, Tibetans got two different languages for honorific and for ordinary. We don't know what to do with that in English. But, you know, so, so many of those things are part and parcel of that culture. And they're so foreign to our culture. And they play a part of how religiosity is lived out. And... You know, and bringing all of that information to this culture, there's a lot that, you know, Anne, my wife, and I um, try to make digestible that, you know, just hitting it freshly without any understanding of cultural differences might make it very, very difficult for people. So where do people get you? Where where can people find you? Yes, people find us at dawnmountain.org mm -hmm. as a religious teacher and a Buddhist teacher and a meditation teacher. And um, they can find me at Harvey Aronson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Psychology Today is as findable <laughs> a listing as any if they want me vis-a-vis -vis therapy. I'll put uh, in an intro piece, I'll put some information too. I'll, I'll link the, the Dawn Mountain 
site and I'll yeah. include um, I'll read your bio and stuff so people will know a little more about you on before this conversation we just got to it yeah <laughs> thank terrific. you thank you for having this time Harvey. Yeah. I appreciate it until next time yeah <laughs> great <laughs>